0: Well, uh, happy new year, happy uh, 2021, it's weird to think uh, that it's another year already, Uh, in some ways it's exciting, Uh, the calendar turns over, it's really just the next day, but it feels different when it's a a new year, and oftentimes we embrace uh, new things and new goals and we get excited and going to eat better, I'm going to exercise, sometimes I'm going to now start a new Bible reading plan or I'm going to... Uh, be more diligent in my quiet time or, or whatever the goals may be in front of us. And there's something about a new year that's exciting. It's, uh, it feels like a fresh start. And so as I was thinking about this year and what we want to see and what praying and asking God for and seeking him on, uh, the hope is that we would see many, many come to faith this year. Those that don't yet know Jesus would come to know him in a saving way. Uh, But also, as I think about just this year ahead, I also think about those that that do know Jesus, that do have a relationship with him, that we would grow in our identity and who we are in Christ, that we would set our hope fully in him. And and I think that's been on my heart a lot as I just think about this past year, Uh, There's a lot of jokes about, thank God, it's it's 2021. We're ready to close the door on 2020 and all that went with that and and the difficulties of it. But when I think about it, I think about it in the sense of in a whole lot of ways, I feel like in 2020 and all the things that are going on, when we have an election year and we have a global pandemic uh, stacked on top of that, what happens is so many get caught up in the temporal, what's right in front of them. And we embrace that more than we embrace who we are in Jesus. And that's true even of the church, but certainly of our world as a whole. And so as I think about that, uh, I say this frequently, but there's no neutral in discipleship. Uh, Discipleship is we want to be growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. And in a year like 2020, we are constantly bombarded with messages all over the place. And that's nothing new, but in this year it feels even more so, or this past year it feels even more so. And what happens is, is when there's so much noise, when there's an election and there's a pandemic and there's all these things kind of pressing in, a lot of times all that noise gets louder and louder to the point that we embrace things that God's called us out of. We set our hope in things that are temporal things rather than eternal things, who God is. And so I want us just to think as we begin this year, we're going to do this series for January, what we're calling Covenant renewal and we're going to think about what does it mean to really be the church what does it mean to truly set our hope in jesus and who he has called us to be and we want to be reminded of that and i want us to start with that idea and so we are going to go back uh, to the book of Romans that we spent a lot of time last year in. We'll pick up in Romans chapter 9 at the beginning of February. But for January, we're going to do this series that we're calling Covenant Renewal. And this idea of a covenant, we have a covenant as a local church, it's, it's just a promise. That's what covenant means. It's a promise that we're making to one another as the church, as a local body, the things that we're saying that we are going to to uh, press into and hold on to. They're things that the scriptures clearly call us to. Uh, And so what we're going to do is we're going to take our church covenant this year and we're going to look at it together and we're going to talk about uh, who we are as a church and we're going to be reminded of that. And so one of the things we say here at CODA quite a bit, if you've been around for any length of time, is that we have one mission. And I don't think it's just our mission as a local church, but I think it's the mission that God's given us as the church, as all believers of all time, and that's to make disciples that make disciples, But when we look at what scripture says about making disciples, go make disciples of all nations that Jesus commands us to do, we're never called to do that just in isolation on our own. Yes, there's this singular mission that God gives us as the church to make disciples, but he calls us into a family of faith when we become believers and we're called to do this together. And so sometimes when we talk about membership or we talk about church covenant or we talk about what it means to be the local church and how we grow together, sometimes the question comes, well, where's the membership passage in the Bible? And my answer is usually there's not a membership passage, not just one that summarizes all of it. But what I did say is, is that there, it is so interwoven into the fabric of the New Testament that you can't grow as a disciple. The fullness of what God has called you to, believing the things he's called us to, and do it in isolation without other people. Because so many of God's commands that he gives us are corporately to us together as the church. And so you can read in the New Testament, and over 50 times there's these one another commands. that it says just over and over, to, to have fellowship with one another, to pray for one another, to extend hospitality to one another, to serve one another, to love one another, to welcome another. To care for, to comfort, to bear one another's burdens, to exhort, teach, encourage, do good, and do it all daily. And the Bible says this over and over and over and over again. And if we're taking discipleship seriously, that we want to be obedient to the things that God calls us to, then we have to be members of one another. Right? In Romans 12, Paul says there is one body in Christ and you are individually members of one another. And we are called to live together, to to be called out together and to love Jesus and to seek Him corporately as a family of faith. And so, what we're doing in our church covenant is we're taking uh, these things that the Bible clearly tells us and we're saying we're going to covenant together or we're going to promise one another that we're going to seek these things. And that's what our church covenant tells us. That's what it says. And so, what we're going to do is we're going to take our church covenant. You're going to find it in your seat there today. It's right in front of you, our church covenant. And what I'm going to do is we're just going to read through uh, line by line as we go through this series. I'm not going to read the whole thing today. We're just going to look at the first couple of lines, but take that with you, read through it, look at it. If you're visiting with us, if you're new to Church of the Apostles, if this is a new thing to you, I would just say to you, this is a great way to get to know who we are as a church. It spells out real clearly the expectations and what we want to be and what we're called to and how we're called to love one another, and we see that clearly in Scripture. I also would say if you're not a member here and you're going to be a member somewhere else or you end up not landing at this church, all of these things are things that God clearly commands in his word that he calls us to as the body of Christ, as believers. And so it's important for us to be familiar with things that Jesus calls us to. But if you are a member of Church of the Apostles and you do call this your home. We're calling this covenant renewal because we want to work through this together. And as we come to the end, we want to say, yes, I am in, and I have said this and I'm part of this church. And these are the things that are expected. And yes, we're going to do this together. And so that's why we're going to look through this. Now, the way we're going to look through this is I'm going to read just those first couple of lines to you in just a second, but then I'm going to show you how what's in our church covenant is directly from God's word. It's actually directly from what Jesus prays for us in John chapter 17. And so let's look at the church covenant there, the first two lines. And and they say this, having as we trust been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and give up ourselves to him and having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do now relying on his gracious aid solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that's the first one there. And I'm just going to stop there. We're going to take those first two uh, lines of our church covenant today. And if you if you look uh, closely, the, the first thing it says is as having been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, give ourselves up to him. And then it says being baptized. And so when we talk about becoming a believer and becoming part of the church, that just is a uh, kind of a a precursor to what we're going to talk about today. The importance of understanding that becoming a believer is putting your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you. Uh, When we were in Romans, we talked about it, transferring your trust from yourself and your good works and what you do and putting your trust in what Jesus has done for you. That that's how we come into God's church, how we become part of his family of faith. Uh, In Romans 10, it says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And so when we do that, when we are brought by divine grace to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the next step that we in our discipleship and entering into the church is to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't have a saving work, but it's being obedient to the thing that God has called us to. And so when Jesus gave us the great commission to go make disciples of all nations he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I commanded. And so when we become a believer God works in us through the Holy Spirit and brings us from death to life putting our faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done rather than ourselves and we become in we become alive in Christ. Although you were dead in your trespasses and sins God being rich in mercy has caused you to become alive in Jesus. And as we do, we then make the step of baptism to say, I am now part of God's family. And it's an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. And so that's the way our covenant starts. And so when we talk about that being part of the church, there's two ways that we could say it. When you become a believer and you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart and you come into this, you're baptized as a, as a, a step of obedience You have now entered into the church, and there is one true church of all believers of all time. And so we have brothers and sisters the world over that will never step foot in our local body, that will never be here, that will never be part of what we're doing here, but they're still our brothers and sisters, and they're still part of the church. But when we talk about what it looks like to live that out day to day, we need to give ourselves to a local body of believers. To be able to do the things that God's called us to, to walk into that with other believers, to keep all these one another's, to do the things that God's... We have to make ourselves known to other believers. And we give ourselves to one another for watchful care over each other, uh, to submit to, to our local leadership, our elders within the church... To be able to do these things that Scripture tells us to, to give of our time and our talents, to give uh, our spiritual gifts that God blesses us with when we become a believer. We're we're to give those back to other believers to build them up. We're to give of our, our money for the good of the kingdom together. And all of these things God commands us to do, but we have to give ourselves to a local body for that to be possible, to fulfill these commands that God tells us. And so, yes, we are part of the church when we come to faith, but then we give ourselves to a local body to live this out. And this is so important. And I wanted us to start this way in 2021 in light of what's happened in 2020. Because what has happened at huge numbers within the church, church universal and church locally, is that many have decided that being members of one another is optional. I can, I can watch on TV, I can tune in for an hour each week, I can read my Bible myself, but I don't actually have to give myself to other people. Now, that doesn't mean someone who right now is staying close to home for health concerns for good reason. That's not what I'm talking about. If you're watching today and you're tuning in and you're involved with our church and you're involved with people, but you don't feel comfortable coming to this building right now, that's great. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about. But what's happened is a lot of people have become very comfortable with the idea that I can just kind of do this on my own. And we can't do the things that God calls us to on our own. Because the church is is not just this gathering. It's not just watching a thing on TV. It is the people of God on the mission of God. And it's something that we're called to do together. And so that's why I want us to look at this and really think about what we're saying, who we are as a church. This covenant, this promise that we're making to one another. And so if you look again just at those first two lines there, the first thing we're saying is we have been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and give ourselves up to Him, to Jesus, our King. We're setting ourselves apart to Him as our Savior and our King. And so the way we could say that, to set ourselves apart to Him, is we want to pursue holiness. That's what holiness means, to be set apart To be set apart to him. That we're not just like the world, but that we see Jesus as our king. And so that's the first thing I want us to think about. And I'm going to show you that in what Jesus says in John 17. But then the second thing, that second line says, we will work and pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that we're to have this unity as believers. That we're to be together. All these things that God calls us to. And I'm going to show you right here what Jesus says that he calls us to this unity. And so I want us to look at this prayer in john chapter 17 and this call to holiness and this call to unity and it's the very first part of our church covenant and so as we look at john chapter 17 this is jesus praying for the disciples in the upper room right before he will go to the cross and so john 13 to 17 jesus is in the upper room celebrating passover with his disciples he institutes the lord's supper he teaches them a whole bunch of things right there and then he prays for them And so when we think about Jesus' disciples, just so we're clear, Jesus had a lot of disciples. He had more than just the twelve. But then he chose twelve kind of as his inner circle, and that's who was there with him. In fact, when Jesus prays, there's eleven there with him because he's now dismissed uh, Judas to go and betray him. And so he's praying for the eleven that are there with him, kind of his inner circle. Uh, If you read closely in the Gospels, Jesus has a lot of disciples, and then he calls the twelve. And then even from the twelve, he kind of pulls aside three, Peter, James, and John at different times. And so it's why we say here as a church, when we talk about disciples, discipleship deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. That's the pattern that Jesus gives us of making disciples. But here he's praying for the eleven that are there with him. But I want you to look carefully at John 17 and verse 20, because look at what he says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so do you hear what that means? Jesus is not just praying for the disciples that are there in the room. He's praying for all his disciples at all time, and that includes you. And so Jesus is praying for you here. He's praying for all those that would come to faith as disciples make disciples who make disciples. And so here's what I want us to look at is what he's praying for us in this prayer. Moments before he will go to the cross and lay his life down. What is he praying? It's a pretty remarkable passage. If you think about it, the son of God, God in the flesh is praying to the father for us. And we get to hear what he prays for us. And so let's look at that together. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Look at 13 to 19. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And so Jesus is praying for us. And he says, I'm praying for those that are in the world. They're still here. And he's talking about he's about to die. And then he's going to ascend to heaven and sit at his throne at the right hand of the Father. And he says, we're still going to be in the world. And I'm praying for them. And in verse 20, he says, he's also praying for those that will come to faith. And so he's praying for us and he's praying that we would not be taken out of the world, but we wouldn't look like the world. That we'd be set apart to him. That we'd be uh, holding fast to his word and what he's told us. And he says, I- I'm doing this and I'm telling them this and I'm saying this, that they would have the fullness of joy that I have. Do you see that in verse 13? He says, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And what Jesus is saying is that there's a fullness of joy that we can have in him when we are set apart to him. When we seek holiness to be different than the way the world operates, but we see Jesus as the thing of our lives. And so what you read in our church covenant and what we're saying is we have been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and give ourselves up to Him. It's what Jesus is praying for us. And He's calling us into this. Father, keep them in Your name. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from looking like the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. We'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. The importance of as we seek Jesus and to be set apart to him of spending time with him in his word. And he's calling us into that. So I was thinking about that for this year and what it means to be set apart to him and what that looks like to pursue holiness and being counted with one another to do that. And I, I was thinking with my boys and how I want to do that in my house. And one of the things that just reengaged really the last couple of weeks is when my boys were little and uh, we used to do the New City Catechism every week. It's something we've used here as the church. If you're not familiar with it, you can download an app. You can go online, newcitycatechism.com. All it is is 52 question and answers, one for each week of the year, that summarizes great big ideas of who God is and who we are in light of that. And it's a great teaching tool. It's a great way to be reminded of what Scripture says. And it summarizes things so well. And it dawned on me just this past week that I used to spend so much time with my boys when they were little doing that, and we haven't done it recently. And so we started picking that back up. I actually ordered a a whiteboard thing for the kitchen, and I'm writing one each week on it with a verse that goes with it. And every time they walk into the kitchen, I go, what is our only hope in life and death? That's the first question. We're not our own. We belong to God. That's, that's the short answer. The, the longer answer is we're not our own. We belong body and soul and life and death to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And there it is in the kitchen as a reminder that we are to be set apart to him. We are not our own. We belong to him. We belong to him as our creator and not just as our creator, but as our redeemer that has brought us back into this relationship by giving himself up for us. And so Romans 14 for no one lives, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And so what Jesus is praying for us is that we would see that. That we would not get our identity from what the world says, but that we would get our identity in Him and who He is and who He has called us to be and who He has saved us to be. And so when we read our church covenant, that's what we're saying. We're confessing that we have been brought by divine grace to repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And to give ourselves up to him. And we're saying this to one another. I'm confessing that to be true. And you're saying back to me, I'm confessing that to be true. You say, great, so we're going to do that together. Because God has saved us into a family. A family of faith that we are called to be set apart and to seek holiness together. And so as we begin this year, here's the question that I want you to consider. Is that true of you? And you may say, yes, I I love Jesus and I have transferred my trust from what I do to what Jesus has done. But my next question would then be, are you setting yourself apart? Are you making that known to other believers and saying, I need you to walk with me in this as I seek to get my identity from Jesus and not the world? Because God has called us to pursue holiness in this way. Not just on our own but corporately together as his family of faith. And he's praying for us to that end. Oh, Father, keep them in your word. Keep them as one. Bring them together. And so that's the first thing we say in our church covenant, that we want to be set apart to him, that we want to seek holiness together. But then the second thing, Look at that second line. We work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And so look at what Jesus says, verses 20 down to about 24 there. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word to you. If you have put your faith in Jesus, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I am them and you and me that they may be perfectly, may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me even as you loved me or you loved them even as you loved me. And so Jesus is saying he's, he's praying for us that we'd have this unity together. And when we, when we read Scripture, that we'd have this joy and we'd have this fulfillment. But when we read Scripture, sometimes, uh, I've had this happen a lot through the years. You preach a sermon and you come back and somebody will say, that was, that was great. But I don't know how you got all that out of the Bible. Right? I read it and I didn't see all that that you just said. And one of the things I always say is, well, how many times have you read it? How many times have you read that passage over and over and really thought about it? And what you're doing is you're helping them walk through how to study the Bible, how to read it. Read it multiple times. Who's writing? Who are they writing to? Start to ask questions, right? But one of the the key things when you're reading Scripture and you're trying to get what's the main point and what is it saying here is look for the things that are repeated. We emphasize things by repeating it and saying it multiple times. And you read this prayer and here's Jesus praying for us. And you go, what is he saying? And if you look closely, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. But then verse 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to, to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Or go back to verse 11. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. doesn't take a biblical scholar to figure out what Jesus is emphasizing. Four times, he prays that we would be one. Just as the Father and Jesus are one, he prays that we would be one. And he's calling us to this unity of believers that we are now unified with the Father through the Son and what he's done. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And he says, oh, that we would be one, that we would understand what's been given to us, who we now are. And I want you to see why he says that. And he says it so many times. He says it over and over. He says it in this section from John 13 to 17 multiple times. And he repeats this. But look at what he says there in verse 21. They may also be in us. That they would be, uh, Father, as you are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. And then he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says the same thing in verse 23. So that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And he's saying that when we are one... And we are unified together in who we are in Jesus. And we're loving each other in the ways that God's called us to. It is a beautiful picture to the world of God's love. And it glorifies him. And so I want you just to think about that for just a second. What do you know about the 12? Or in this case, there's 11 with them at this point because Judas has now left. But what do you know about Jesus' disciples? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe when you were a kid, you you learned a song and you could say their names or, you know, some of them. I know Peter, I think John, Matthew, right? They they wrote some books in the Bible. But a lot of times we just kind of gloss over those things. They're just names and we don't really get what's happening. I had a great professor in seminary and Dr. Holbert used to say, I want you to walk in their sandals. I want you to know the context, contextualize what's happening and who these people are. And think about what it was like. And he was so great at helping you see that. And so if you think about the 12 that Jesus called to himself, kind of his inner circle of these disciples that he spent so much time with, you can go and read about when he chose them in Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, it says Jesus went away overnight. He went off on the mountain and he prayed all night and he came down and he called his disciples together and he named the twelve. And there's a list there in Luke chapter 6, and it's the 12 disciples. And it goes through the list. And if you read that, it's just a list of names. And you get to chapter 6 in verse 15, and it says Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot. And you read that list, and it's easy to gloss over the list that's there. And it's easy just to kind of go right through that. But if you go back and you read in context and you go back to Luke chapter 5, right before that, we're introduced to this guy, Matthew, that becomes one of the twelve. He's also called Levi. Don't let that throw you if you go read in Luke chapter 5. But Levi is Matthew. Matthew is Levi, same guy. And so, Matthew, when we're introduced to him, it tells us that he's a tax collector. And so, if you know anything about history and what was going on at the time, Judea, this area where Jerusalem was, the Jewish people, were under, uh, they had been taken over by the Romans. And so they weren't free people. They were under the heavy, oppressive world government of the Romans that had taken over everything. And it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time to be a Jew under that. And they lived under that. And so Matthew was a Jewish guy who became a tax collector and worked on behalf of Rome. And so what he did is he collected taxes for the oppressive government on his own people. And so he was hated. He's a guy that nobody likes. Pretty much every Jew would have been like, he's a traitor. He's with the bad guys. And on top of that, the Romans would then tax you to the tune of like 80 to 90%. And then usually the tax collectors would then tax you a little bit more and put some in their own pocket. And so everybody hated the tax collectors. Everybody hated the person who now works for the opposing government that it's over. It'd be like if Russia invaded the United States and took over and then you went to work for the Russian government, taxing your neighbors on their behalf. That's who Matthew was. And so you read that Jesus chose Matthew. You go, wow, that's kind of interesting that he would choose this guy that everybody would hate. But then if you read closely in Luke chapter 6 and verse 15, and it says, And Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon who was called the Zealot. Well, who's a Zealot? And why do they say that? In the New Testament it tells us people's names and there's a modifier usually because there were a bunch of Simons. Not Simon that lives over there, Simon the Zealot. right? Not Simon Peter, but this other guy, Simon. And he was a Zealot. And if you know history at all and what was going on, who were the zealots? They were radical extremists that were politically motivated to expel Rome from the area. They were Jews that wanted to fight the Romans. And their whole idea was we're going to incite the people and we're going to rise up and we're going to defeat the Romans and we're going to push them back and we're going to get them out of Jerusalem and we're going to get rid of them once and for all. And so here's what I'm driving at. And so when Jesus chooses the 12, he says, I want you, Matthew, that works for the Roman government, and I want you, Simon, that hates the Roman government, and I want you guys to come with me. You're going to be my guys. And I'm going to disciple you. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus bring those two guys and bring them together? Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So that the world might believe that you have sent me. So that the world might know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Or you can go back to chapter 13. In the same breath, in the same moments, As Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, but you are also to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's he doing? He's saying the glory of the gospel is so wonderful that it can bring people together from any backgrounds the zealot that hates the Roman and the Roman guy that hates the zealot, the ones that would never get along, Jesus says, you're going to come with me and we're going to love each other and we're going to love each other to such an extent that the world watching is going to go, that's what God's like. And it's going to show the glory of the gospel. That Jesus is far greater than anything else. That we are all saved the same way whether you're this idealistic zealot that wants to dispel the bad guys, or if you've given up your life and you've gone to work for them, that Jesus saves you in the same way, that we all desperately need Jesus in the same way. The cross radically humbles all of us, that we're all sinners and we all desperately need Jesus. And in doing so, it unifies us in a way that nothing else can and so as I was thinking about 2020, when some people are like, I'm not going to wear a mask. And some people are I'm only going to wear a mask. And I'm only going to vote for this person. And I'm not going to talk to the people that vote for this person. And then it comes into the church. And Jesus says that in Him we have a unity that transcends all those things. And when we love each other in that way, it'll show to the world what Jesus is like. And so when we say as a church, we have been called into this to work and pray for the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, this is who Jesus has called us to be. You realize when he calls Matthew and he calls Simon the zealot, it's like taking the greatest Trump supporter and the greatest Antifa guy and he's like, come on, we're coming with me. I'm going to disciple both of you guys and together you're going to see the glory of the gospel and what I've done for you and it's going to bring you together. And that's what we're called to be is the church. To love one another in such a way To understand that we won't want to look down on other people that we desperately need God's grace the exact same way they do no matter who they are. And in doing so, together, it becomes the greatest apologetic for the church. They will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And that's who we're called to be, is the church. We're called into that. We get to do that. We get to be part of Jesus and what he has done for us. And so I would just say this as we think about 2021 as a church. I just want to remind you that we would embrace this glorious truth that our unity, our love for one another is solely rooted in who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. That transcends all else. And in doing so, as Jesus prays for us, we'll show the world what he's like. So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you that it shines so brightly above all else. I pray that we in this year would place our hope completely and totally and fully in you. That you would be the thing that binds us together. That our understanding of who you are and what you've done for us would be the thing that drives us to love others. In the same way that you have loved us. We pray that we would be a bright shining light. We as this local body. But we as the church universal would be a shining light of what it means to love one another in the ways that you have loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.